I say that the print is king. There's nothing better than the photographic print hanging on your wall, looking at it and enjoying it. And if more people did that, uh, they would love their, their, what this photography thing is that we're all crazy about. If they started putting the work on the wall and seeing their friends and family coming to look at the This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we've got a treat. We are going to the the absolutely mysterious side to me of photography, and that is printmaking. We're changing from process to product, even though that difference really isn't a hard one. And so we are talking to an international master of making prints, of making the actual object count. In other words, we're talking with Bob Carney up in Toronto. Bob has been a professional photographic printer since 1976. He has had the opportunity to print the work of some of the legends of, of photography. And I will admit I am tremendously ignorant when it comes to what makes a good print and, and how even to imagine that. So I'm looking forward to this. Bob, welcome. How's everything up in Toronto today? Uh, it's great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. And thank Frank Frames Magazine. <laughs> much appreciated. Well, Bob, you are a, a master at this. I've been going through your website. I've been going through the great many YouTube videos that you've got. And my imagination about what is possible in photography really expands every time uh, I, I come across the work that you're doing. And, and so I really want to spend some time today talking about what the what the range of prints and, and printmaking processes are. But You've got a pretty cool story, um, even how you even got into this. So, I mean, you were you were not born a printmaker. You know, around 1970s, you went on a big motorcycle trip. Tell, tell us, everybody, the how you got to be who you are story. Oh, okay, I'll try to make it brief. <laughs> I'll cut, try to keep it within two hours. Okay. Um, well, you know, like a lot of people, when I was in, young, I, I was not an exceptional student in high school. And basically, I came to Crossroads. I got a job, you know, I left school, got a job, raised enough money to buy a small motorcycle. And when springtime came in Canada, in Toronto, or in London, Ontario, in fact, I decided to go to the west coast of Vancouver. And I was told by friends that there was a lot of work out there. So I, I headed on my 350 Honda, and I drove all the way out to British Columbia, and um, sure enough, I got a job in logging camps on the west coast of BC, and I, I did that for a year or two. And basically, I realized when I was out there that was a very hard job to do. It's very, very, very demanding, and I decided that maybe it was too much because I was looking at men that they were in their early 40s, and they were completely worn out. And so I decided that was not for me. No, as I say, but a lot of people, you know, don't wake up on a Tuesday morning in a logging camp and say, I'm going to open an art gallery. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was a hell of a long journey since then. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I applied back to London, Ontario as a mature student a few years after I had, uh, had left high school and I got accepted at Fanshawe College in photography. And I, the only reason I got accepted is that they thought I was a 
exchange student from another province in Canada. And (laughs) so I automatically got in with no portfolio review, no review. I had no idea what photography was about. And so I got to London, Ontario, and I basically walked in the the group darkroom, watched my instructor, Arnim Walters, um, put a negative in the enlarger. I had no clue what he was doing. And then he exposed the paper and I could see that it was reversed. And I thought, well, this is strange. And then he walked over to the developing tray. And honestly, that was it. I was hooked. That was it. Why do you think it was the processing that really grabbed your imagination more so than standing on the street corner with a camera in your hand? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a simpleton. Maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe it's because I, I, I found it magical. I mean, to be to be really honest, I, I couldn't explain it. And I even today, some 50 years later, I still do that process. And I'm always amazed how it works. Right. It's kind of like understanding how radio works. How does how does radio work? You know, or how does a phonograph work with an old record player? It was that kind of mystique. And I just happened to be in a three year course and. From that moment, I went from the worst student to what I think was one of the best students there. Oh, very cool. And and I should not, by the way, um, put down your photographic work at all. You just had a show open yesterday uh, called Alchemy of Nature. You've got a tremendous range of nature photography and also what you call um, photographs of consumption, things that we use every day. But before we get into the print making because i mean that's that's clearly where uh, i need a good deal of education tell me about your artwork tell me about your images well good question when you're a professional printmaker you gather equipment and the equipment is generally very large and very static it's not movable and so i own a lot of equipment that i use and it can't be moved so in my life Everything comes to me. Like I see the world coming to me. I never go out of my place because I'm paying rent on a facility here in Toronto. It's expensive. And so you're, you're kind of hooked to your uh, location. But I always had this desire to photograph. And, you know, I like a lot of our viewers here that it may be my age. We've gone through quite a few relationships in our lives, some good, some bad. And at a particular point, I, I was going through a bad situation in 2000, and I I decided every Sunday to take a day off of work. I lived at my studio or nearby, and in behind my place was a crushing plant, aluminum crushing plant for recycled objects. So I would go out every day, every Sunday, for about a year and start photographing these aluminum objects. And then from there, it evolved to different objects. And then around me where my lab was, there was a dressmaking place. I got dresses in. I got musical instruments brought in. And I just started photographing inventory. I call it inventory. And to date, I have like thousands and thousands of negatives I've photographed. Some of them I've never, most of them I've never printed. But they've all came to my facility. And I, I've kind of recording them as curiosities and I print them in a manner that is very permanent so my hope and my my big hope is that the two images I make of every object will be bought or sold or 
put away or given to somebody, excuse me, and in 400, 500 years, if, if our planet is still around, people will look at these little objects and start saying, well, what the hell is this? It's a, like a little fishing lure. Like, what was that used for, right? Or fur coats or objects that maybe will not transcend time. So basically, it's kind of like a time capsule of the year 2002 to 2030 when I think I'll stop shooting photographs. And the nature one was basically in Canada or in Ontario, southwestern Ontario, Muskoka is a, a region of the country we all go to for our summer vacations. And I went there into Gravenhurst area to this lake and my grandmother's cottage and I would spend all my summers there. So about 2006, when I got married in 2007 with my wife, Laura, we went and spent a summer up there. And basically all I did was record every location that I remember as a youth because we were going to lose the property and I wanted a permanent record. So that's how that nature audio work came along. It was just basically my own identity of that uh, landscape and the ability for me to you know, keep it as a memory. Well, Bob, you, you've mentioned the idea of permanence twice now, and, and that, that's a marvelous segue into the work as a printmaker, especially the work that you're doing uh, as a printmaker, because so many of us, I mean, and, and maybe I'm projecting here, but I do believe a lot of us look at the print as being uh, disposable, as being temporary. Um, right. You know, the, the, the image in our imagination is electronic now, or um, if we're old, really old school, you know, on a negative. And yet you argue that the print is, is actually the thing we need to pay a lot more attention to start to finish. The, the print should be in our mind when we raise the camera to our face. What is it about that shift in imagination do you think is important? Well, I, 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 I think it boils, for, for me personally, I, I know everybody comes at, at it differently and everybody has a very varying viewpoint of what photography is and what they enjoy. Obviously, I'm a printmaker, so, you know, I, I, I love the physicality of the print. Uh, I, I started printing in 76 professionally and I went through a lot of various uh, labs in Toronto, Ontario. Now, Toronto is a hub for photography in, Can uh, in Canada, but it's one of the major hubs in North America. So I worked at a lot of major labs on, on huge projects. And back in that time, it was all C-print. Uh, you know, uh, do you, if, if our readers know what C-prints are, that they are color prints, but they're made in a wet process and they're basically dye-coupler color photography. So... I worked on some pretty impressive projects uh, in the 80s and the 90s and the, going to major museums, going to institutions, going to various places worldwide. And the C-print material basically fades. And so I started getting very upset with the fact that I was working on something that I felt was going to the landfill. I, I just – I thought – well, this isn't what I really want with my photography. So I started a small black and white lab, and I specialized in fiber-based silver gelatin prints only. 
no, no RC prints, no color prints. Then I started doing some Cibachromes because that, during that time I was told by the manufacturers that Cibachromes were permanent, which it turned out not to be the case. But I was a fool and I bought the machine and I, I tried them. Then, and I had an extremely thriving business in the 90s. Uh, we were really doing well with film, film only, processing, contacting, printing, small works, big works, Cibachromes, and then digital came along. And basically my analog business went completely down the tubes, completely gone in, in a four-year period. And so I basically, through one of my clients, he, he basically said, you know, what do you need to do? I was too, too young to retire, and I was too, too old to start a completely new profession. So I said, well, I need to study digital. So what he did is he gave me enough money to live for two years. I closed my business, basically, and I started taking courses with Dan Margulis and others like that, Katrina Eastman in New York City. I met her and took courses, and everywhere there was a Photoshop workshop, I was there for two years. We bought a Lambda exposing unit, uh, Durst Lambda, and we started doing digital work. So I immersed myself in the digital side of things, but, but during that whole period, I kept all my analog equipment because I knew that I was going to mix the two. It wasn't mixable at the time, but I knew I could do it if I learned enough about the digital side. And that, that eventually turned out to be true. Well, you know, one of the, the I think, um, misunderstandings for people that are doing the kind of printing you do, you do is that it is somehow antithetical or not on the same page as digital. And yet there's a tremendous amount of Photoshop work that you do before um, some of these projects come to life. So w w would you argue that, that you are in, in a uh, creative way sort of leading edge in the digital era? Well, I'm not certainly not leading edge on the digital side Photoshop. I have my methods, but I will tell you that I've done hundreds of thousands of Photoshop edits. And I think Photoshop is probably one of the greatest inventions in our field ever. And I'm so, I'm, I, I, I work on Photoshop every single day. What I have done and what there are, there are others like me that have started mixing old school graphic arts work, like using registration systems, UV lighting systems, mixing old processes and then using new digital negatives. So I, I do more digital negatives than I do anything else today. I, I, I print everyday digital negatives for one project or another. So we're contact printing silver gelatin all the time now. I am now back in 2023, now uh, 2022, sorry, but going into 23, I'm seeing more silver gelatin work coming through my space now than I did 25 years ago. Yeah, I see a huge resurgence. Yeah, I, I'm looking at your website and we, we should tell everyone it's Bob Carney Printing and Gallery, all is one word, dot CA. And I, I'm simply unaware of most of the options. How, how can I, as a photographer, you know, I'm looking to compose anything from street photography to landscapes to still life. What, what should I know about what's possible as I'm thinking about imagining this image in front of me? Well, 
specifically, there's things you should know once you know what you want to get, right? Uh Um, There's not an image that can come up on a screen that I can't print on either gum bichromate or silver gelatin. It's it's your own preference, your your own palette that you want to have in your own work. So it's takes a little bit of education on the mm-hmm. artists themselves to to do some research. I mean, I can't tell people. I get that I get asked all the time, well what should I how should I make this? And I said make it whatever way you want it to look on screen. Then let me make a print and if it's what you envision, then let's go with it. If not, you've you've wasted a few hundred dollars. <laughs> And that happens all the time. Trust oh, me. Yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Trust me. I know that one too. I mean, and again, going back to this, this notion of permanence in, in your mind, is the print the equivalent of a painting? I mean, there, there is only one original. No, no, okay. uh, no, because, you know, obviously if you look at my, um, uh, my gallerist, I, I do editions of two now. So I used to do editions of 20, when I was young and naive, then I started, I dropped them down to 10. Then I realized 10 was a stupid number. I would drop down to five and now I'm at two. (laughs) Now there's a good reason for that because you know, I'm also in the gallery world. So, you know, like I've, I've did a lot of shows and I know very few people that have sold out every single image that they put up in a gallery show. The, the amount of photographers that can say, that when they do an edition of 15, they're all sold. There is a there is a chap in Toronto that can do that. And, you know, he's one of my friends, but, you know, he's an exception. So the way I look at it is I'm making these objects, prints. I have inventory of images that I've photographed for enough to 2,000 images. If I do two prints of everything, that's 4000 And if I'm selling my prints for over $1,000, do the math. Yeah. I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And and I'll never get it done. <laughs> I'll never get it done. So, so I like the low edition. And I'm not sure if this is answering your question, but a, pa- a painter will make a painting, but now they're taking copy work to the painting and making reproductions. So there's a, you know, that's all that's been going on. I personally won't do that kind of work. So if somebody comes in with a painting to me and says, will you copy this? I say, no, I'm not that guy. I don't want to copy somebody else's painting and then make right. reproduction. So, you know, it goes both ways. I mean, but for me, I like making a print that I know will last for a long time. I like to know where that print goes, what kind of home it's going into. And I like to consider that over time, my value of my artwork is increasing and is resellable. So if your work becomes resellable, that's a very, very, very important stamp. It's not what you sell it for in a art auction or one of these charity auctions and they, it's inflated. It's what is your work selling for today and it, what will it sell in 20 years? And I like to make a very low amount of prints. So for me, two prints is it. That's it now. Okay, but I mean, again, you're arguing the thing is the paper, is is the print itself. The thing is not the file sitting in, in a memory storage unit somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, once again, Scott, you know, we all come at it from a different viewpoint. So there'll be a lot of people that come up with different arguments, but you happen to be asking me today. And I, right. say, I say that the print is king. 
there's nothing better than the photographic print hanging on your wall, looking at it and enjoying it. And if more people did that, uh, they would love their, their, what this photography thing is that we're all crazy about. If they started putting the work on the wall and seeing their friends and family come in and look at their artwork or even participating in a group show or doing a show themselves and basically standing there and, and hearing viewpoints that you'll be very surprised how people view your work, right? Once you start putting it out there. I wonder, you know, and, and again, I want to talk about your, your gallery work uh, here in just a second, but I really wonder if our imagination of photography hasn't been altered um perhaps, you know, substantially for good or evil about the electronic presentation and you know, the gallery being my cell phone. So yeah. the experience of standing in the gallery and contemplating and, and coming to terms with an image um, that is, you know, six to eight feet away from you and of, of a certain size and presented in, in a certain way is becoming a little bit foreign, I think. We're, you know, we're, we're more used to Instagram than we are to the art gallery. Well, I, you know, Scott, I disagree with that because okay. all I'm seeing now are young people coming into my shop. Now, I, I do happen to have my shop in what's considered an upper, upwardly mobile area of Toronto. It's, 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 a, it's the real arts s- section of the city. And every day I'm having these young couples come in into my shop with a piece of art they purchased uh, uh, I have them they're coming in with their own photography or their friends and asking and Am and I and Haley uh, my staff to print it frame it and make it beautiful and and we're not cheap we, we we charge quite a bit of money but they want just this nice photograph to go on a wall and then they will come back three months later and say I need another one and they they, they start building their collection so I think there's a I think there's a movement back to People are sick of the iPhone. They're sick of, you know, screen captures. They're sick of all that. I mean, not. I mean, it's a tool. Uh huh. But they're being caught on it, and so now they're, they're they want something physical. And a lot of my business is, you know, a lot of older photographers that I've known for thirty five years coming in and say, "Hey, Bob, I want this one image I took thirty five years. I want you to make this print because I want to keep it and pass it down to my family." So I end up being pretty busy, like I'm the buggy whip salesman, right? Because <laughs> there's not many guys or gals like me selling printmaking. There's a lot of artists doing what I do, but they're they're doing it for their own purposes. I happen to be one that does it for other people as well as myself. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. I hope you're right, man. I, I hope that the pendulum swings back really hard 
I think it will. Okay. Well, now, Bob, tell me a couple stories because you have an international reputation for excellence. And one of the benefits of that kind of reputation is that you get to print the work of Vivian Mayer. You get to print uh, images of John uh, Lennon and Yoko Ono. I mean, people come to you when they want care and quality and and that little extra bit that I certainly can't get, you know, just hitting the print button on, on a copier. Tell, tell me a couple stories. Tell me about Vivian Mayer. Tell me about doing the John Lennon print. How'd they come to you and what did you bring to that process? Okay, well, with Vivian Mayer, I can't speak too much about Vivian Mayer because obviously there's these, uh, the Cook County has thrown the a lot of issues on, on her work. But I can say when the work came to Canada, I was interviewed by Jeffrey Goldstein and, and Ron Gordon. Ron Gordon is the Chicago printmaker that has done the bulk of Vivian Mayer work for the for the Goldstein collection. And when, when the work was brought out of United States into Canada and there was a bunch of shows done up here, I was interviewed by by the, the Chicago group in Toronto. And I, I didn't know why I was being interviewed. They, they, they had me sit with Ron and talk with Ron for quite a while. And I had to explain to him how he made the prints. And, uh, you know, basically boiled down to, I said, well, why, why are you talking to me, Ron? Why, you know, why, why are we talking? And he says, well, he stood there. And if you can imagine, Ron is a, a, a bit older than me. And he, he lifted his right arm, which is the arm that you focus with, and he couldn't get it above his shoulder. He says, Bob, my arm is screwed. And he says, I don't think I can do it. And he said, I want you to print it. So I ended up printing only one show uh, because the, after that, the work was put away and it's in Europe somewhere right now. And I don't know what will be the end cause of it. But basically he looked for somebody that could match his style. And that's one thing that I'm, I've always believed in uh, being a chameleon and I can print in many styles. I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time learning different styles. Well, but her work is pretty straightforward, monochrome, black and white street stuff. What, what does style mean to printing that kind of an image? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to make it, Two printmakers in two different cities working on the same work, and um, they're, it's completely different, right? So you have to be able to understand how the other printmaker work because specific sizing, specific dodging and burning, the type of dodging burning or the lack of, the, 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 the type of paper, the chemicals being used, the toner being used, what kind of retouching is being done. All those factors are part of a, of a job when you're working on something like that. It's not. It's not like. It's not like fantasy love. Oh, I'm happy. It's a. It's a real job. It's a real. Yeah. It's a real. Uh, I mean, it was an honor for me to work on that, but it was very difficult. Very difficult. I, I remember seeing some of those uh, dodge and burn maps that you can see on the internet and stuff, and thinking, my lord, the hours that must go in um, to get these things right. But why not simply transport the prints from Chicago? Why reprint them in Canada? Well, you have to research the, the whole Vivian Mayer uh, issue about uh, the legalities. And, you know, I don't want to go too much into okay. it because I don't. Okay. But the reality is that it just couldn't be done in Chicago anymore. Okay. The John Lennon story. So John Lennon, John Lennon is, an, is a Jerry Dieter collection. Jerry Dieter 
was hired by Life magazine to photograph John and Yoko in, uh, I think it was 1969, I believe that's the year, at the hotel in uh, Montreal. So Jerry spent a week there photographing in 35 mil color and black and white. And um, he basically uh, was going to get the cover of Life magazine, but then he didn't get the cover because the Vietnam War came out and took took a spot away. So that those images never hit the cover of Life, but he was hired by Life to do that shoot. And there's thou, you know uppers of thousands of images of that project in color and in black and white. The collection is now owned by Joan Athey, who is in Vancouver uh, Island, and she was friends of Jerry Dater. And when he passed away, he she she took care of the collection for him and it's represented by Stephen Bolger gallery in, in Toronto. So I'm a, I, I, you know, I'm a friend, close friend of Stephen and his wife, Catherine, who, and Stephen is considered one of Canada's top gallerists. So I print a lot of work for, for Stephen. We, we built a trust over the years. He had the Vivian Mayer collection uh, that he has Larry towel work, the Magnum photographer and, a lot of Rita Leitzner, I print her work as well. And and so for the way I work is some of the top galleries that are in the photo world, I, I work on some of their projects, not all of them, but, you know, a good part of them. Uh-huh. And so in 1989, no, sorry, 2009, I'm losing my memory here now. <laughs> in 2009, Stephen did a one-week gallery open of, of John Yoko's sit-in. They brought in a local chum F, uh, no, um, one of the local radio stations, rock music stations, and they played music seven hours, uh, 27, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days. And um, I did all the black and white work for that show. And another lab in the city did the color at that point. And so I'm still in touch with Joan and Steven on that. And when I did that show, Whenever a printer does a show, they have the right to ask for a printer proof. And that's something that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of. So when somebody comes to me for a show and they said, we want you to do it, I say yes, and I want and I decide how many printer proofs I want. So depending on the magnitude and the scope of the project, I may get one printer proof or I may get two or three printer proofs, depending. So I have a Vivian Mayer printer proof. I have a John Yoko. I have the David Bowie. You know, I have a lot of musical work that I've done and covers for different uh, records that I, I do the work, but I, I insist on a printer proof. And I'm glad I did because the artist has to sign it. So there's no no problem like there is with that Avedon collection where, you know, people are saying the printer shouldn't have the prints. So every, every print I have here I own and it's signed by the correct, it has the correct provenance on it. Right. So that's kind of the bonus of being a printmaker. You can, you can demand that. And if they don't give you the printer proof, you don't do the job. Oh, I, I'm suddenly thinking of the blow to the ego. If somebody asks you to do a job and you don't ask for a print. <laughs> I always ask for a print. <laughs> 
I, I always ask for the print because you never know who that hidden gem is, right? Oh, absolutely. I should tell everybody, you know, you have a great many videos uh, on YouTube and other places where you tell these stories. And you really do have a personal interest and, and relationship with the, the, the print, the, the physical thing itself. And, of course, you run a gallery. And you've got a, you've got a great gallery video about trying, or not trying, but successfully hanging a salon-style show. Talk to me about two things. Talk to me about the gallery, you know, how you envision that as, as a viewing space. Um, and, and tell me a story about a show that was either particularly successful or particularly a challenge. Okay, so, yeah, that's a great question. So, gallery. In 1979, I was working, I believe 79, I was working for a man by the name of Slobodan Filipovich. And I was doing wedding, wedding portrait printmaking in his basement, and I would do weddings. And he wanted me to stay with him. And I told him, Mr. Philip, I, I, I just don't want to stay in this, this business. I don't want to chase brides for the rest of my life. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I love the printing side of it, but I, I, I do not want to go out to these weddings and take photographs. You know, And I was good at it. I just, I hated it. I right. absolutely hated it. So anyways, he became a bit of a mentor for me. And, and he, he said one thing to me that stuck with me. He says, okay, Bob, so if you want to, if you want to start a business, cause he offered me his business and it was a very good business. And he said, you can have it. I said, I don't want it. He said, no, you can have it. I said, no, I don't want it. But he said, okay. So we, we, we still remain friends and I still worked for him. And he says, well, here's a secret. He said, if you want to be a printmaker, Bob, start a small gallery. When you, when you get yourself settled, that people can come and congregate and see your work or different work. Also surround yourself with about 30 or 40 photographers that you do all the work for them. And he says, you'll never, ever, ever, ever need another job again in your life. You'll be, you'll be successful. And, you know, it took me, it took me quite a while to get to that point, to be honest with you, because I, I went and I did a 20 year stint working for other people to learn certain things, but that's what I'm doing today, Scott. I have a small gallery. It's non-representational. I hang work that I like because I've got to walk in every day and look on the walls. And if I don't like it, I, I don't want to. I don't want to hang it. And people, my clients, they put it up there. I supply the framing. I supply the space. There's no fee, but it's got to be really good work. I don't always have to print the work. I want to make sure I respect the artists who I'm hanging on the walls. So, you know, I've had a lot of really nice shows hanging there. Currently, I have Alexander Premack, and he he is from Kiev. And his his work I saw online two or three years ago. And he works in gum bichrome at Tricolor like I do. And he's really good. He's really good. So I, I, I said to him, oh, listen, Alexander, I have these frames here in Toronto you know, send me a work and I'll put a show up for you. And he agreed. So that was about a year and a half ago. And, and I, but I said to him, I insist that the work is here three months in advance, because if you don't send me the work, I'm, I have a open space that I don't want to have open. So that was the rule. So he was supposed to have this work here in May of this year, 2022. 
And we all know what happened on, happened in Ukraine. Right. So I got hold of him in November and I said, you know, I don't want to be insensitive here, Alexander, but don't you think you should send the work to me sooner than later? <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, yeah, right? Yeah. And he said, you know what, Bob, there's a hundred thousand troops standing on the border. I think I should send it to you now. And sure as hell, he sent me all the crate. I got it within a month, a year in advance, almost oh, not a year, but a good nine months in advance. And so that's the work up here. And we're, we've been selling his work and sending all the proceeds of his work back to him in Ukraine. So we've raised about six or 7,000 Canadian that goes back to him. And, and I think that helps him and his wife, you know, there it's, it's a very tough time, but that's, that's, a, that's a part of my gallery that I'm really proud of. That is, that is a cool story, but to tell me what is a good gallery show other than the content of, of, you know, whatever the image may be, but in terms of presentation, in terms of the experience of standing in a space and, and and experiencing imagery is is there good galleries and bad galleries beyond the quality of the show they're putting up? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you know, and I'll, I'll go back to you meet so many different people with your podcasts and Frames Magazine. I go on that magazine. I see all the different unique styles of photography. It, it's really, really, really broad. So. You know, you may not like corned beef sandwich, but I love them, right? <laughs> yep. Right? So yep. you may not like in a certain gallery because you may feel the gallerist is snooty. Or you may not like the, the, the gallery because they're only open at certain hours. I mean, generally speaking, I don't like rental galleries. And I did run them for quite a while as a part of my business. And I, I hated it. But I was forced to financially at one point, and it was, it's a, it was the worst experience. So I've been running a gallery since 1998, on and off. I finally found the perfect formula for me, which is non-representational. The art on the wall is there, and I like it. So that's the perfect gallery for me. And may, you may walk in and go, Bob, this stinks. I, I can't stand this work, right? right? And that does happen. But that's not why I have the work up. So I think... You know, for, for the artists out there that want to approach galleries, my suggestion is to go to a lot of galleries. Never throw out your iPhone and try to show the galleries your work. That's the kiss of death right there. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> go there. Find the in your area the galleries that you do like. And here's probably... Everybody's... I don't know what everybody... I shouldn't say everybody's not going to like this. I think a few people understand this. Buy a piece of art. Go to the gallery that you really like and buy a piece of art. Show that gallerist that you're not just a wannabe, you're somebody that will do something. So you go in, you build a relationship with the gallerist. I tell you, that will help you. And not that you're buying your way into the gallery, but you're showing your intent because the people that own galleries are under duress all over the, all over the world. I mean, you're seeing all these galleries closing because people in the since COVID won't be going into them. So there's a lot of people that are out there with galleries hoping you're going to walk in the door and maybe purchase one thing. That may be the that one purchase may be the difference between them staying open or closing. So, you know, if you want to start in the gallery world, you need to support the gallery world. And not just by showing up at gallery shows, but also 
finding the ones you like. And then slowly after time, I will tell you, a gallery sees you walking in. And when I say you, I mean the viewers here. Right. Will see you walk in and they'll start recognizing you. And believe me, they will eventually ask you about yourself. And then you say, well, I'm a photographer and I work on this and I like this kind of work. And you know that they may w- like your work because you've, you've, you've gone in and did your homework and you realize this is a gallery you think that you could be part of. So it's once again, it's, it's a lot of homework. It's a lot of work on the, on the artist's side to, to prepare themselves. And it's not speedy either. You're booked, what, two years in advance right now? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and any gallery that's, that's worth its salt will not book immediately. They, unless they're just opening and they're, they're, they need to have some quick volume going through the place. No, I mean, I used to run a show when I first opened in 98, it was called elevator gallery. Okay. And we ran, I think it was 56 shows in a row every three weeks. So I don't know how many years that is, but I can tell you by the end of it, we were, (laughs) we shut the gallery down because we couldn't, we were exhausted. It was unbelievable. (laughs) So now it's every two months, I leave work up for two months and everybody, so I'm booked all the way through next year. And, you know, I invite people that I see that I like their work and, you know, I, I, I don't do it based on commerce whatsoever. So my, my space is nothing based on commerce it's based on do i actually like the work myself and i think it's and i don't pick i don't usually pick people that are have huge gallery representation i try to pick people that don't have gallery representation but maybe they should have so by in my space people walk into my galleries but i don't know who they are but i can tell you they're a lot of them are directors a lot of them are museum people they the, and they they just don't want to you know, they walk in, have a coffee, and they leave. The world of printmaking, the world of gallery, it is rarefied these days. And you, you said somewhere that, you know, you guessed there for every printmaker, there were 10,000 photographers. Uh, right. And uh, I, now I don't want to piss everybody off now. That's <laughs> your words now, Scott, not mine. <laughs> no, but it, it's, it, it's, I mean, simply going through the videos that you have online and being made aware that there are these different processes um, has changed what I imagine when I'm out on the street taking pictures. Yeah. Um, I mean, and realizing that the print really is what I'm going after. It is something that I needed to be reminded of because the print to me has always been a trial. You know, I'll, I'll change a curve on something and I'll hit print. I, yeah. I will, you know, and if, if I punch out 15 prints in a day, I don't care because, you know, th- they are not that special to me before I started looking at the work you're doing and other printmakers. Well, you just it, explained the opposite side of what I do right there. Yeah. And I needed that education. I needed to be reminded that, frankly, everything I'm doing is finally going your way. Well, not everything, Scott. I mean, and I, back to the point of, you know, why are we doing this? Okay, why, well, why do you love photography, Scott? I mean, I. the question is, for me, that image on the wall, I walk by at 3 o'clock in the morning to get a drink of water, let's say, and I can see that image and it reminds me. Uh, so I have a photograph of my 
dog that passed away. And I walk by at three o'clock in the morning. And I see this beautiful photograph of my dog and sparks a memory and it sparks an emotion. And so for me, having a print finished is, is, is the ultimate. I mean, and I, there could be hundreds of people that argue against what I'm, I'm saying and, and that's fine, but that's what I feel. I feel it really should be embraced. And it's, you know, obvious that I own a printing framing shop. So, you know, why wouldn't I say that? But right. I wouldn't need to own a printing or framing shop. I've always had art on my walls, you know, and I've always had either my own or art of my friends or work of shows I've done. I, I'm not a, I'm not a classical art buyer per se. Like I go out, like I know nothing about fine art painting, for example. All I know about is photography and there's areas of photography I like, and there's areas I dislike. And so I collect the areas that I like. Well, Bob, you have, as I said, made, made a mark in the world as somebody uh, extraordinary in, in making prints with the care and the knowledge and the technology and the aesthetic. It's all coming together. And it is work that I am now envious of and ambitious toward. It is fantastic. Thank you, Bob. Well, I'll, I'll make a print for you, Scott. <laughs> okay, I'll send you a picture of my dog. How about that? There you go. Send me a picture of your dog and I'll make a beautiful print for you. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This has been enjoyable. Thanks, Scott. And thanks, Frames Magazines, for uh, giving me this chance to talk. I, everybody, again, go check out the website and the YouTube videos. It is really, um, to use a technical term, necessary. Take care, Bob. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.